0: The title for this second talk is His Will is Love. His Will is Love. When we pray, thy will be done, does it scare us? I've had so many people say to me when I have read to them the prayer of Betty Scott Stamm, which was, became my life prayer when I was about 12 years old, But that's so scary because it is a total transfer of the will to God on the part of this young woman who was a guest in our home when she was on her way to China. Her name was Betty Scott at that time, and she went to China and married her husband John Stamm. And both of them were captured by Chinese communists and beheaded. And Betty Scott Stamm had to watch... As they beheaded her husband and then was forced to put her neck on the chopping block. Now you can imagine that that made a deep impression on an eight-year-old child. She had been a guest in our home when I was about four. I don't remember that very well but I do remember the fact that she was there so when my father brought home the evening bulletin from Philadelphia that night it made a life long impression to know that this woman who had sat at our dinner table had paid that price. And so when I was 12 and came across the prayer of her life, I copied it into my Bible and it became a prayer of my life. And these are the words, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. I understood at the age of 12, that discipleship could very well be costly. It's always costly, different ways for different people. So I can understand people saying, but that's so scary. But the older I get, the more I realize that his will, whatever it is, is always love. And back to the analogy of the cup of milk. My mother's will for her little boy was nothing but love. You know that, don't you, when you have a child. How could you possibly want anything but love? How could you possibly feel anything toward him but love? Now, of course, there are times when you get out of sorts and you get out of patience and you want to throttle that little boy. But the only reason you get so upset by him is because you love him. And you want him to behave himself. You want to raise a nice little girl or a nice little boy to civilize this little barbarian that God has given to you (laughs) and make him start thinking about somebody else besides himself so that he can get along in the world and be happy. You want fulfillment. You want happiness for your children. And the only way they're going to find fulfillment and happiness is by doing what you tell them to do because you love them. Now, isn't it exactly the same with God, only infinitely more so? He is perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, perfect in love. Parents are imperfect in all of those, and yet we love our children. I love my grandchildren. I pray for them, I'm sure, more and harder than i ever prayed for my one and only child i presume for one thing because the world does seem to have gotten worse for another thing because i i just am so grateful and, and i'm so overwhelmed with the mercy and the grace of god i've i've learned more about the love of god and i just pour out my love for my children and my grandchildren in prayer for them praying that God will keep them in his will because I know that fulfillment for my grandchildren will be obedience to God, and it's not anywhere else. So if you're scared of the will of God, remember that his will is always love. If you don't dare to pray in honesty, thy will be done, do you really understand what it means to be a child of the Father, a child of God? If you don't dare to pray that, then your understanding of what it means to be a child of God is certainly deficient. And I think the human analogy helps us, doesn't it? Even if you had the worst father in the world, if your father was a drunk, if he was incestuous, all these horror stories that we're hearing about all the time nowadays, it seems to me that everybody comes from a dysfunctional family nowadays. I hear from practically everybody and these terms that come to us all the time, Things are much worse than we thought they were, aren't they? All this stuff being this scum coming up to the surface now that probably didn't used to come to the surface. But even if you didn't have a father at all, or if you had the world's worst father, the only reason you know he was a bad father is because you do have an idea of what a good father is supposed to be, don't you? We have an idea. We all know what a good father is supposed to be. Well, God is the perfect Father. And the perfect Father loves us with an everlasting love. And underneath are always the everlasting arms. And we are surrounded as the mountains are round about Jerusalem with the faithfulness of God. And we are overarched. His tender mercies are over all his works. Is that a safe place to be? Do you know any other? Sometimes young, prospective missionaries come up and ask me, how can I take my children to such a dangerous place as the mission field? Well, my daughter and her husband were both raised in the jungle. Her husband in the jungle of Africa and my daughter in the jungle of South America. And there were all kinds of physical dangers, you know, we had electric eels, and vampire bats, and poisonous snakes, and jaguars, and stingrays, and you name it, scorpions, cockroaches, like you wouldn't believe, so big you could hear them walking. (laughs) I'm serious, literal, literally. And Valerie and Walt feel that they were brought up in a much safer environment than they are bringing their children up in, which happens to be Orange County, California. They would take the jungle any day compared to that. But apart from that, whatever the physical dangers or any other kind of dangers, moral dangers, much worse, of course, than physical, my question to those terrified young parents is, do you know any safe place in this universe except the will of God? I don't. You know you could be killed in your own bathtub. You know every time you get in your car that you're taking your life in your hands. But physical safety is really a relative triviality, isn't it, compared to moral safety. But if you're worried that your children are going to be deprived by living in some remote place or somewhere where they don't have the conveniences and the Coke machines and the Nintendos and all the rest of it that they depend on so heavily in this country, if you are in the will of God, you can be sure your children are in the will of God. When I had to make the decision as to whether I was going to go in and live with the Alcas, people who had killed my husband, or not, I knew perfectly well that I was risking my life, but that was not really very important. The thing that really gave me pause was that I would be risking my daughter's life. How can you take a three-year-old child to live with a bunch of naked Indians who killed her father? The will of God... Is love. If God calls me to be where I am, then God calls my child to be with me, because God gives children to mothers and fathers. And if He took her father, He had to be the father to her, and I had to be her mother. Now, some of you, I'm sure, know the wonderful story of Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, and some of you may not, but For all of us, it just helps me to read this over and over again with regard to this matter of the will of God. And St. Augustine says in his confessions, when he was speaking about leaving for Rome, he had made up his mind he was going to leave home and go to Rome, which was a big city and a very dangerous city and a place in which his mother was convinced he would be totally destroyed morally and theologically. And so his mother prayed earnestly, that her son would not go to Rome. And he says this in his book, Why I went thence and went thither, went thither, thou knewest, O God, yet showedst it neither to me nor to my mother, who grievously bewailed my journey and followed me as far as the sea. Can you picture this weeping mother going right to the dock? But I deceived her holding me by force, that either she might keep me back or go with me. And I feigned I had a friend whom I could not leave till he had a fair wind to sail, and I lied to my mother, and such a mother, and escaped. For this also hast thou mercifully forgiven me, preserving me, though full of execrable defilements from the waters of the sea, for the water of thy grace. He was saved from the waters of the sea for the waters of God's grace. Whereby, when I was cleansed, the streams of my mother's eyes should be dried, with which for me she daily watered the ground under her face. And yet refusing to return without me, I scarcely persuaded her to stay the night in a place close by the ship, where was an oratory in memory of the blessed Cyprian. That night, I secretly departed, but she was not behind in weeping and prayer. And what, O Lord, was she with so many tears asking of thee, but that thou wouldst not allow me to sail? But thou in the depths of thy counsels and hearing the main point of her desire, there's the clue right there, hearing the main point of her desire, which certainly was the best for her son, regardest not what she then asked that thou mightest make me what she always asked. Do you understand? God said no to what Monica was praying in order to say yes to the greatest prayer of her life that God's will would be done in her son Augustine. The wind blew and swelled our sails and withdrew the shore from us And she, on the morrow, was there, frantic with sorrow, and with complaints and groans filled thine ears, who didst then regard them. While through my desires thou wert hurrying me to end all desire, and the earthly part of her affection to me was chastened by the allotted scourge of sorrows. For she loved my being with her, as mothers do, but much more than many. And she knew not how great joy thou wert about to work out for her out of my absence. She knew not, wherefore did she weep and wail, and by this agony there appeared in her the inheritance of Eve, with sorrow seeking what in sorrow she had brought forth. And isn't that the story of motherhood? In sorrow seeking what in sorrow, meaning in pain, not sadness she had brought forth. And yet, after accusing my treachery and hard-heartedness, she betook herself again to intercede to thee for me, went to her usual place, and I to Rome. But thou, everywhere present, heardest her where she was, and where I was, hadst compassion upon me. God heard the mother's prayer way over here, had compassion on the son there in that Wicked city of Rome, couldst thou despise and reject from thy aid the tears of such a one, wherewith she begged of thee not gold or silver, but the salvation of her son's soul? Thou, by whose gift she was such, she was his mother by God's gift, couldst thou despise and reject her prayers? Never, Lord. Yea, thou wert at hand, and were hearing and doing in that order wherein thou hadst determined before that it should be done. Now here we've got the mystery of predestination. God had already determined before the foundation of the world that he would have to say no to Monica's desperate prayers and that Augustine would do the thing which she was positive would lead to his destruction. And to go to Rome And it was in Rome that he was converted. What are you praying about, hammering on God's door about today, thinking God doesn't pay any attention. God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough. May I see the hands of those of you who are spiritual enough to (laughs) pray. I mean, we'd all be in very big trouble, wouldn't we, if we had to be spiritual enough to pray, Thy will be done. We don't have to be spiritual at all to simply say, Lord, I offer my will to you. Thy will be done. To be a child of the Father means that I've got to be able to pray the Lord's Prayer. And here are these great, general, broad petitions that seem to embrace the entire universe. And they come right down to the particulars of my own life. If I pray, thy will be done, it may very well mean for me, my will be undone. And who of us likes that? So, point number one, I offer my will to God. My will is my decision-making power, and it is an absolute power. God does give us the power of making decisions. And you can say the devil made me do it, or so-and-so made me do it, or it was his fault, but we chose to do it. And we may choose to disobey God, or we may choose to say, Lord, here is my will. I offer it to you. And as I told you, that Decision that Jesus Christ was to be Lord of my life was made when I was about 12 years old. It was at that point that I realized that even though I thought I was saved, and I probably was a child of God, I had not realized that if Jesus Christ is my Savior, then Jesus Christ must be my Lord. And so I prayed, Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. And when we pray, Thy kingdom come thy will be done. We have got to be willing to surrender our wills for the accomplishment of his will. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, how could we expect that both the baby in the high chair and the loving mother are going to get their wills simultaneously? It's not going to work that way. The child finally had to say no to himself. He did not want to drink that milk. All he wanted was to get down. When he saw the thing that he wanted more, he drank the milk. And it was just an immediate thing that Monica was praying for. This step that my son is taking will ruin him. And of course, he was ruined morally. I mean, Augustine is very, very candid in his confessions of what a dissolute life he lived but he had to be like the prodigal son, had to eat husks, live in the pig pen before he came to himself. But that was God's way of bringing him to himself with a capital H. So I offer my will in the power of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Remember that when Jesus was in the garden facing the cross, He prayed first, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, that was an understandable prayer, wasn't it? He was human. He lived in a physical male body, which was going to have to suffer. Who of us would choose physical suffering if we had any choice whatsoever? And so, in his human manhood... He got down on his knees and prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass. And yet he himself had said, for this cause came I into the world. And the next prayer is, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now we need to understand that there are two opposing wills here. And this is the deepest mystery, to me, of the suffering of Christ. He willed to do his father's will, but he had to will against himself. And that shows strength of will. Now, with apologies to Dr. Dobson, who has written and spoken a great deal about what he calls the strong-willed child, I would disagree in his use of that term, because what he's talking about is a stubborn child, who is a weak-willed child, who cannot and will not will against himself. And Jesus Christ showed what true strength of will is to say no to oneself. And my brother Phil finally had to say no to his immediate desire and drink the cup of milk in order to fulfill the other desire. So when I offer my will, I am participating in the work of Christ himself because Christ himself had to say, not my will but thine be done. And it was his willingness to lay down his will and his life, that which was distinct from the will of the Father. And yet he said, I and my Father are one. So we don't expect me to sort out this mystery. We simply know that in his, huma- in his humanity, he shrank from death and suffering, and he couldn't have been in an agony sweating great drops of blood as it were if there hadn't been a tremendous battle and conflict going on and that battle was won when he said not my will but thine be done so his sacrifice brings into itself mine I mean, I can offer him nothing that I haven't already been given. I've been given life, I've been given the power to will, I've been given breath and brains and emotions and everything that I've been given. And I can offer it back to God. But the decision-making power which God has given to each of us in creating us in his image is an absolute power. And Adam and Eve chose out of their own God-given, divinely bestowed power, they chose to defy the one who had given them that power. Isn't that incredible? That God would even create somebody that could defy him. He didn't have to make us capable of doing that. He could have made us like the clams and the lobsters and the giraffes and the tides and the winds who obey him. Always. When I look out at that ocean, I think it obeys God perfectly. It therefore glorifies God by being exactly what God created it to be and doing exactly what God created it to do. You and I don't do that. We shake our fists in his face sometimes. We defy him. We say, no, my will be done. But he he gave us that power, didn't he? So Christ, in love to the Father, gives himself to the Father. The Father, in love to the Son, accepts the sacrifice. And you and I, in love to God, also may offer ourselves to Him. And God, in infinite, amazing love and grace, actually receives the offering which reminds me of when my second husband, and here I am actually quoting my second husband twice in one day, he wrote me a letter called the geriatric letter. I mean, he didn't actually call it that then, but I've called it that since. He wrote me a letter when he was moving in toward the kill, um, meaning a proposal, um, (laughs) closing in, you know. This man was 18 years older than I was. I was 42. And he wrote me... A very realistic letter about what I would be getting myself into if I married an old man. And he predicted previews of coming attractions. You know, the day will come when you're gonna to have to take over the driving and next thing you know you're gonna to have to be cleaning my glasses and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, this long list of not very appealing things that I might have to do if I took on the job of being his wife. And he ended the letter with, the, with these words, but here I am, all of me for you forever, but what kind of an offer is that? And isn't that just the way you'd feel about offering yourself to God? Here I am, Lord, all of me for you forever, but what kind of an offer is that? What can you do with this woman, with this miserable heart of mine, with my feeble, flabby will. And he says, come, child, him that cometh to me I will never cast out. Come to me, all you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Rest from your fears and your sorrows and your anger and your burdens of unforgiveness and all the rest of it. But, in order to receive the rest, there are three conditions. Come to me, take my yoke and learn, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And so he calls us to offer our wills and to bend our necks under that yoke. And that is the offering of the will to God. And here's a little poem that I found, and I'm sorry, I don't seem to have the author. Lord, here I hold within my trembling hand this will of mine, a thing which seemeth small, and only thou, O Christ, canst understand that when I yield thee this, I yield mine all. I'll read it again. Lord, here I hold within my trembling hand this will of mine, a thing which seemeth small. And only thou, O Christ, canst understand that when I yield thee this, I yield mine all. It is an absolute transfer. Point two. I am still having offered my will to God to make my requests. The Bible clearly tells me, make your requests known to God. As Monica did, her agonized, wholehearted request was, don't let this boy go to Rome. And God let him go to Rome. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, let me read you a little bit of what C.S. Lewis says about this business of making requests. Let's remember that when we make a request, it is sometimes granted and it is sometimes not. If you ask for somebody to pass you the salt at the table, presumably they're going to pass you the salt. That's not a request which would be very likely turned down. Or if you ask your neighbor to feed your cat. If you have a nice neighbor, she or he might feed the cat. If you ask your boss for a raise in pay, that's a little more scary. It would give you a little more pause, wouldn't it? And if a man asks a woman to marry him, That's probably the most terrifying question a man ever asks, at least men nowadays. My husband and I talk to a whole lot of men that just don't seem to ever be able to screw up their courage. One young man told us that he'd met the most wonderful woman in the world. He said, she's absolutely everything I've ever wanted in a wife. I've been dating her for two and a half years. And we said, are you engaged? And he said, no. And we said, why not? Have you asked her to marry you? And he said, Well, I can't do that. And we said, why not? And he said, because I don't know how she feels about me. Now, did you ever in your life, and my dear husband said to him, there's a real fast way to find out. Just say, I love you. Will you marry me? And you're going to know right off how she feels. Now requests, back to C.S. Lewis here, numbers two, three, and four might not necessarily have been the result of our request. And here we we get into this thing that non-Christians always face us Christians with. Oh, you talk about your answers to prayer. They're just coincidences. It would have happened whether you prayed or not. If I asked the neighbor to feed the cat, it just might be that the neighbor would have fed the cat anyway, knowing that the cat was outside and liking animals, she might have fed the cat whether we'd asked for it or not. So who knows whether it was because of our request or not. If you ask the boss for a raise in pay, it just could possibly be that he's been hearing wonderful things about the terrific job you've been doing and they had already discussed it in the board meeting and we're going to give you a raise in pay. So who knows whether your request had anything to do with that. And if a man asks a woman to marry him and she actually says yes, it's probably because she made up her mind long before he ever thought about it. <laughs> that she was going to marry him. (laughs) So prayer is request. It is sometimes granted and it is sometimes not. But was it coincidence? And I would like to say that I believe that the universe is created with laws, many different kinds of laws. The law of gravity would be one of the obvious ones. And I believe that prayer is one of the laws of the universe. God so ordained the world that my prayers actually do matter. Now when I lose my pen, which is one of those little things in life that just drives me up the wall because I like to think that I'm very organized, I always know exactly where everything is, I have a place for everything, and it's always in its place. And if the pen is not in its place, I can get very upset, and it has taken me years to realize that that is the point at which God is putting his finger and saying, pray about it. Of course, I have to also look for it. But I have already looked, probably in every possible place that I think it could be, emptying all the wastebaskets, sometimes going out to the garage and emptying out the garbage pails where the wastebaskets have been emptied, before I even think of praying. And then when I pray, God brings to mind the one place which I didn't think about. God ordained prayer as a law of his universe, so your prayers matter. And I would not have found the prayer, the pen without the prayer. It really wouldn't have happened. And C.S. Lewis tells about when he was going to London one day, he was going to get a haircut. It happened to be the day when uh, he normally got his haircuts. And just before he left to go to the, hair, to the barber first and then to the train for London, he got a phone call which told him that the trip to London was no longer necessary. So then he thought, well, I don't need to bother to get my haircut. But he said there was something very strong that told me to go ahead and get my hair cut anyway. And he said the minute he walked into the barber shop, the barber said, Oh, I'm so glad you've come. I prayed that you would. Now, we all have stories like that, don't we? Just amazing stories. Prayer does matter. Let your requests be made known unto God, even though you don't know whether they fit into his kingdom or his will. When I make my requests, I give the Lord my list. I say, Lord, it looks to me as though this is... These are the things that need to be done. These are the things that I hope are going to happen. These are the things that I hope are not going to happen. This is the marriage that is in such a mess and needs to be fixed up. This is the child who's in the hospital and needs to be healed. This is the situation in my house that is troubling me right now, the work on my desk that I don't know how I'm ever going to get through with. These are all things on my list, but Lord, if they don't fit the bottom line, which is, thy will be done, scratch them. Never mind my petitions, just do what you know is going to bring about the coming of your kingdom. And that is a a very simple and peaceful way to pray. My prayers, in other words, are not to force God to cooperate with me, but to teach me to cooperate with God. Prayer is cooperation with God. And I cooperate by praying And by doing what God wants me to do. So that's number two, and now we come to number three. If you've already lost track, number one was offer my will. Number two, make my requests. And number three, learn to will His will only. Learn to will God's will only. And here we need to make a clear distinction between wanting and willing. I could not tell you how many dozens, perhaps hundreds of letters that I've had from people who read my book called Passion and Purity, which is about the love story of Jim Elliot and me and five and a half years of uncertainty and waiting and separation and not knowing whether God was going to bring us together. And the book is also meant to help people to understand what surrendering one's desires means to God. And I spelled it all out in very intimate detail. I mean, much more intimate intimate than I was comfortable in putting down on paper, but I thought, if I'm going to get through to kids, they've got to know that this old lady knows where they are, knows where they've been, and remembers it quite vividly. So I put it down. And I get piles and piles of letters, many of them 15 pages, 20 pages, 25 pages, you know, I read your book. One girl told me she'd read it 200 times. And I said, now, come off it. You don't really expect me to believe that, do you? And she said, honestly, Mrs. Elliott, at least 200 times. So I told that story just a few weeks ago at Southwestern Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, and a girl came up to me. And she said, I want you to know that I've read that book at least 300 times. But the strange thing is, if they've read it 200 times, they still have to write me 25 pages to say, but I mean like, you know, I have this really neat relationship, and I mean like, wow. (laughs) And I just don't, I don't think the Lord is telling me that I need to surrender my desires to him because I still have them. And I still really I, I really desire this man, and I've prayed that the Lord will take my desire away, and he hasn't done that, so don't you think this is the Lord's sign to me that he is going to give me this man? And I have to write back what I wrote in the book, but they didn't read it very well. Um, he's not necessarily going to do that. And you're not going to get a promise from Elizabeth Elliot that God has a husband for you. God is asking you now, today, to surrender your will to him and say, Lord, anything you say, I'll take it. Even if it means singleness for the rest of my life. And I had made that decision back when I was a a senior in college and had entered into what we used to call senior panic. Because if you don't find a husband on a Christian college campus where there are hundreds of very attractive single unattached Christian men, where do you think you're ever going to find a husband? And so I had no prospects, and I began to pray about this business of being a missionary, single. I I knew God had asked me to be a missionary, and I was thrilled. But I really didn't like the idea of being an old maid missionary, and so I said, Lord, do you have a husband for me? And the Lord said, trust me. Well, Lord, couldn't you just kind of give me a little hint? And he said, trust me. But Lord, I don't like the idea of going to some remote jungle of Africa all by myself for the rest of my life. Um, wouldn't it? Don't you think it would be best for me to have a husband? <laughs> and the Lord reminded me of the prayer I had prayed when I was 12 years old. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. And he said, do you rescind that prayer? No, Lord, I don't. Will you take what I want to give you? Yes, Lord, I'll take it. Is it going to be marriage or singleness? (laughs) And I think what the Lord said then was, none of your business. It's none of your business right now. And certainly if God had told me that he was going to give me three husbands, I couldn't have took it. Couldn't have took it. So what I wanted was a promise of a husband and I wanted it now. What I willed was the will of God. I didn't have to feel differently. Do you understand the difference between wanting and willing? Do you wash your dishes only when you feel like it? You wash the dishes because the dishes are dirty and you will to wash the dishes. You want to go and sit down on the sofa and read a book but you wash the dishes, right? Do you get up only when you feel like it in the morning? How many of you never get up until you feel like it in the morning? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Wanting and willing are not the same thing. So when these dear, sweet, young people whom I so desperately want to help in this agonizing business of love life, and I have many, many letters from men as well, and we've had many long talks with some of these men, and I think Lars and I can now count up about maybe six couples who have really actually gotten married because we said to the young man, you asked that woman to marry you or else. In fact, <laughs> Lars told a young man not very long ago that the man had called him up and given him this long story about this wonderful girl and she met all his qualifications and he wanted to bring her up to see us. And Lars said, well, have you asked her to marry you yet? And he said, no. And Lars said, don't come until you do. <laughs> and lo and behold, he came very shortly thereafter and he brought the young lady with him, and she had a ring on her finger. So we were very, very pleased about that. But God has given us in prayer what Pascal called the dignity of causality. In other words, the ability to actually cause changes. Now, how do we manage to offer our will to God? To me, it's a very simple transaction by faith it helps me and don't imagine that i'm prescribing that this is the way you have to do it but i've found it very helpful simply to get down on my knees and physically lift up my hands to god and say lord you know my wants in this thing i surrender to you my wants and i offer to you my will and i will receive what you want to give me and now we get down into the second part of the Lord's Prayer, which we don't have time to talk about, give us this day our daily bread. And if you pray that God will give you what is best for you, then when it comes, you have to be willing to receive it. And so I offer in a literal, physical act, because I am a physical being and I need all the help I can get. I'm not spiritual, not very spiritually minded, and I'm not just spirit. And so. It helps me bodily to do this. Just say, Lord, here it is. Take it. I surrender it to you. And I really do believe that God receives that. And my brother Phil willed to do his mother's will when at long last he saw it as the only way to achieve his happiness. He didn't want to drink the milk. He willed to drink it. I hope the story makes it plain. And I want to close with Psalm 145 verse 19. He fulfills their desire if only they fear him. Well, let me read verse 18 as well. Psalm 145, 18 and 19. Very near is the Lord to those who call to him, who call to him in singleness of heart. And singleness of heart means the offering up of my will. He fulfills their desire, if only they fear Him. Three points, once again, offer my will. Secondly, make my requests. And third, learn to will His will. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then... Remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.